What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Ponko Chicken. Ponko Chicken, if you did not already know, is a unique spin on Japanese and Western cuisine. Uh, there are stores, if you're not familiar, um, all around the Atlanta area. Uh, there's one in Marietta now. There's one in Buckhead. There's one in Shambly. There's one in uh, Midtown. They're popping up everywhere because Ponko is awesome and uh, they're like family. So um, go check out Ponko if you have not already. It is the home of the award-winning Japanese-American chicken tender. Just to brag on them a little bit more, they were Verizon Super Bowl Live top-selling vendor, three-peat Taste of Atlanta award winner, um, Midtown Alliance Best Taste winner. Just they won all the awards because Ponko is great and Ponko is delicious. So if you are in the Atlanta area and are looking to try something new and good and delicious, go check out Ponko Chicken today and tell them that I sent you over. Uh, also, if you have not already, go check out ChaseThomasPodcast.com. It's where all of my episodes to all of my podcasts are, all of my writing that I do, uh, more information on me and who I am um, and why you should be listening to this podcast and reading my work and all of that great stuff. Go do that. Go to Chase Thomas Podcast today. If you're an Apple Podcast listener, go ahead and leave me five stars and a rating and a review. That's great. I need it. Um, it helps the show continue to grow and all of that good stuff. Um, you can listen on SoundCloud, Spotify, like I said, Apple, Google Play, everywhere where you can get your podcast, the Chase Thomas podcast will be there. So go do that today. Um, all right. I think that's everything. We can get into today's episode. Uncle Darren, let's go. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate, I already hate it. I hate it. All right. Welcome back to a Wednesday night edition of the Chase Thomas podcast. First up tonight uh, of the Memphis Commercial Appeal. He's the Memphis basketball beat writer, Jason Munns. Jason, good evening, sir. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm great. I appreciate you for uh, uh, having me on. Yeah. Where did the Commercial Appeal name come from? It always throws me off. I always like say it out loud and it doesn't sound right for Memphis. It always it always weirds me out. Every other paper, you get a good idea, but commercial appeal always sounds wrong, and I always get apprehensive as I'm getting ready to introduce someone from that paper or anything like that. I know. I I wish I had a uh, an answer uh, for you, but uh, I mean, it, I don't know. Um, I mean, I've worked for a few papers that have had some interesting uh, names. I guess I worked for the Picayune Item. Uh, down in Picayune, Mississippi, for a little bit, and uh, uh, you know, a few other papers that have some interesting names, but nothing, nothing yet that has come close to the commercial appeal. It's uh, it's definitely unique. There's no doubt about that. Well, the first thing I have to ask you about Memphis basketball right now is um, what happened with James Wiseman, and what's the current status of Mr. Wiseman? Uh, so James uh, was recruited to Memphis, uh, by Penny Hardaway. He committed and signed, 
let's see, would have been November of 2018 uh, was when he officially announced that he was coming to Memphis. And so, um, you know, uh, obviously that was a huge deal for uh, for the Tigers and, and for Penny Hardaway, um, who actually coached uh, James at the high school level, which is kind of where the uh, story, uh, you know, what, what led to the uh, story unfolding the way it has. He uh, came came on campus. Um, they went to the Bahamas in August, this past August, and he did not play um, due to uh, an injury, uh, a shoulder injury. And so uh, that sort of put a, a little bit of a damper on um, the buildup uh, of the season. And then we get to the exhibition games, and he's still not playing, and they're saying it's because of an ankle uh, an, an ankle injury, um, which uh, from what I understand is, is, is accurate, but, um, there was also this sort of underlying, uh, issue that, uh, came to light after the first game, first regular season game against South Carolina state. It was, uh, just a couple of hours before their second game against Illinois Chicago, when it was revealed that, uh, the NCAA had ruled him, uh, had ruled James ineligible due to uh, something that had happened back in the summer of 2017 when James and his mother and his sister moved to Memphis from Nashville, which is where um, he's originally from. Uh, at that time, the, the family, uh, Wiseman's family, didn't have the money. They needed some help with moving expenses, and Penny Hardaway said, well, I'll give you some, you know, I'll give you some money to help you move. Uh, he gave uh, Wiseman. He wasn't coaching there at the time, right? He was not coaching at Memphis, but he was coaching at East High School, which is, which is, you know, in here in in the city of Memphis, and uh, that's where Wiseman was transferring to. Um, but he he gave her eleven thousand five hundred dollars, and which on the surface is not, you know, that's that's not necessarily an issue, even though it, you know, it may look a little odd uh, given how things played out, but. Um, yeah, he was still, he was still, I guess about a year away from being named head coach at Memphis. Um, but because he had given a million dollars to the university of Memphis athletic department, which is, uh, you know, he, he played at the university of Memphis back in the early nineties. Um, he gave him a million dollars, uh, million dollar donation in 2008. That meant from from the from that point forward, he is always going to be considered a booster. Uh, and so, if he doesn't you know, make he, that donation, none of this unfolds the way it does. Basically, that's that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, but because he's, you know, the NCAA defines uh, the way they sort of define it. Um, you know, once a booster, always a booster. And so even though it was back way back in 2008 when he made that donation, uh, he's always a booster. And it's an NCAA violation when a booster provides any sort of financial um, assistance or benefit or whatever to a prospective student athlete, which is what uh, James Wiseman was. Um, And then, you know, there's been all this uh, sort of talk that you know, what if James had gone to Kentucky or what if he had gone to Florida state? Well, he could have absolutely done that because he didn't receive money from a 
Florida State booster or a Kentucky booster. It just so happened that Penny Hardaway is defined as a Memphis booster, and he signs with Memphis. And, and as soon as he did that, uh, it became a violation. And so um, the NCAA, you know, ruled that he has to sit out. Uh, the University of Memphis said, no, we're going to keep playing him, um, which was another mistake. Uh, they they um, played him two more games and before finally saying, okay, we better, we better sit him down or else uh, this could get really, really messy. Um, so they played him two more games and they finally sat him down and the NCAA said, uh, he's, you know, yes, he has sat out. Uh, a couple of games now, but uh, he's going to have to sit out a total of 12. And so, um, you know, he, he accepted his punishment and he had sat out seven games. And uh, at that point he decided I'm, I'm done with school. I'm done with college basketball. I'm going to go start training for, uh, for, you know, getting ready for the NBA draft, which is um, what he's been doing since a little before Christmas was when he officially left um, and, he, and he moved to Miami and, uh, and, and that's where he's been um, ever since then. And he just gave his first uh, interview since leaving. Uh, he talked to uh, Woj, um, you know, over at ESPN and, uh, you know, he talked a lot about, you know, how everything sort of unfolded and, you know, where his head's at now and that sort of thing. And so, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a, it's been a soap opera uh, ever since, you know, pretty much since the jump. Um, and, and that's a big reason why Memphis is where they are right now. Do you think Penny Hardaway is long for this job? I'm sorry, say that again? Do you think Penny Hardaway is long for this job? I ask, and that might seem silly on the surface, but I think with violations like this, maybe I, I wonder these kind of things. They happen quickly or it's just like um, a Lane Kiffin type situation. Like I... I do wonder if he's if he is long for Memphis. Do you think this is something that he's going to be able to do to and be able to avoid these violations when he's recruiting as well as he is and things like that? Or do you think this is something that they're hoping to um, not? This is probably a poor choice of words, but secure the bag and win a title before they're forced to all move on. Like, what do, what do you think is Penny Hardaway's trajectory on Memphis? I'm sure he probably wants to be there for the long term, but do you? do you forecast him being at the university long-term? I, I think that's a very valid question. And one that, that, uh, you know, some people have wondered about, um, does he just, you know, uh, cut bait and, and decide that, you know, all of this just isn't worth it, uh, to him because I mean, I mean, let's be frank, he, it's Penny Hardaway. He doesn't need to, uh, put himself through, you know, the ringer, um, which is kind of what has happened this season. I mean, ever since, uh, James Wiseman left, they've been a, they've been a pretty average team, uh, you know, in the, in the American conference, um, you know, and so, uh, and then, and then, you know, there was the report that came out shortly after the Wiseman stuff surfaced. Uh, I believe it was Pat Forty um, who reported that, uh, the NCAA, could be uh, going after Memphis for more violations, uh, you know, that they weren't necessarily closing the book on their investigation of Memphis. And so um, I definitely think that it, it would be 
uh, naive to assume that, you know, Penny Hardaway is not at least considering, uh, you know, just doing something else because, you know, he can, he can do whatever he wants really. Um, but that being said, the Penny Hardaway I know is he's a very proud person. Um, and I'm just not sure that he, and he's a very competitive person. And so he hasn't yet accomplished. I mean, he's got big goals, um, both person, you know, personally, professionally. Um, and, and, you know, he, he wants the best for, uh, his alma mater. He, he wants to get Memphis back to where it was, where, you know, where it's been before. I mean, this is a team, this is a program that's been to three final fours and, uh, you know, he, he, he wants to be the guy to get Memphis back to that level. And I don't, I just don't see him stepping away from from the challenge before he meets it. Um, and so, while I don't, unless he's I, forced well, to, <laughs> right, right. Now that that could be that that would be a whole different ball of wax. I mean that that you know that would be you know who who knows how that um, would play out if that if that was if that if it came to that, but. Um, you know, I don't, I don't see him necessarily stepping away from this on his own, uh, yet. I mean, you know, who knows if, if everything that's gone on this season shortened his timeline, uh, you know, we'll see, but, um, I don't think he's going to step away, uh, in the near future. Um, and I, and I don't think that, I don't think that there's necessarily anything, uh, yet that has, you know, that, that, that rises to the level that there, that the, the university is going to have to, um, you know, take, you know, steps to go in a different direction. And we're not, I don't think we're there yet. Now that's not to say that it won't get there at, at some point, but, um, as of right now, I don't, I don't think it's quite to that level. When you look at next year and who's coming back and who figures to come back and the recruiting class for next year, do you think Memphis is on track to be better um, than what they've been this year? See, that's the that's the million dollar question, man. It's it's uh, you know I, I think they're in good position recruiting wise for the class of 2020 um, as it stands today. I do feel like. Uh, they are the odds-on favorite to get Jalen Green and uh, Greg Brown. Now, that can certainly change, obviously, um, but I think they're still very much the favorite to get those um, those two elite prospects. And then, you know, you've also got to look at the potential of uh, Musa Sise, who's a junior. Um, I know they're they're going really hard after him. Uh, he's an elite defender who would, would give them, um, you know, a shutdown rim protector type guy. Um, and he's talked about reclassifying, uh, pretty, you know, the, 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 the reading between the lines and the writing on the wall, um, he's expected to reclassify. And if he does, I fully, uh, I, I think Memphis is the favorite to get him too. And so, but <clears throat> 
outside of, you know, I, I'm not so sure that, that that part of it is, is the most important recruiting job that Penny Hardaway and his staff is facing uh, this particular off season. I think it's really going to come down to, you know, who they get to stay. I mean, anymore, you know, you just assume you're going to lose one, two, three guys to transfer, you know, uh, no matter where you are pretty much. I mean, it's just kind of the, the way things, uh, you know, it's, it's the nature of the beast. Now you just, you guys transfer. It just is what it is. Um, and so I think it's really going to be important for, uh, Penny and his staff to, um, you know, to convince this young core to come back, uh, all of them. Um, now I don't think they'll get all of them back, but if they're able to get, you know, all but one or all but two back, then I think they're going to be in really, really good shape next season, especially if they get Jalen Green, Greg Brown, and Musa Cisse. So, um, you know, there's – but it's it's going to be interesting. It's going to be, uh, you know, does Boogie Ellis come back? Does Lester Quinones come back? Um, uh, you know, what about Damian Ball, DJ Jeffries? I mean, these are these are guys and, – and certainly Precious, the two, is not coming back. He's, he's a, he's a first-round NBA pick uh, in June. So, um you know, I think that's really going to be the most important thing uh, going into next season is is who you know who stays and who goes. Last thing, and then we have to wrap up here. Um, if you had to give a team MVP this season, and, and then a team not MVP, uh, who would it be? So, so I'm just to make sure I understand the definition. Obviously, MVP speaks for itself, but not MVP would be. Like LVP, least valuable player, is that what? Yes, absolutely. Guy who, gotcha. and it has to be someone like not an obvious like fourteenth guy on the bench. Somebody yeah. who, you know, maybe expectations weren't the highest, but just has not had uh, the kind of season they needed to uh, keep them atop the AAC. Well, I think um, Precious Achua is is the sort of the obvious answer for MVP. I mean, he's averaging a double double. Um, he's got fifteen double doubles this season. Uh, which is eighth most in the country and most of any freshman in the country. Uh, so, I mean, he's, he's really, you know, been the key pretty much in every game uh, for Memphis and he's only getting better. And, um, and so I think he's really the clear uh, MVP. I expect him to be the, the freshman of the uh, freshman of the year in the conference and, and potentially the, uh, uh, the the conference player of the year. I mean, he's 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 making a case for himself to to be the uh, the conference player of the year. As far as the not MVP, I, I would you know I would tell you Boogie Ellis was really trending in that direction. Um, you know, halfway through the year, uh, but his last ten twelve games, he's really really come on strong. Uh, I think in his last 10 games, he's averaging something like 12 or 13 points a game. So um, he has picked it up considerably. Um, so I would have to say Damian Baugh would be my, would be my pick. Um, just because, you know, he wasn't that heralded coming out of high school. 
um, you know, he, he was like, you know, toward the bottom, they, they signed seven guys, even though he was a four star, he was, I think the lowest rank or the next to lowest ranked, um, you know, but they go down to the Bahamas, they play four games in the Bahamas and he looks like a guy that, you know, that he was kind of a reason, uh, one of the reasons why everybody got so excited about this, about the possibilities for this upcoming season. They were like, listen, if the, if the guy who's the sixth or seventh best prospect uh, in our, in our seven man signing class, if he's that good, cause he played really, really well in the Bahamas. And they're like, if, if he's that good, then, then maybe we really can make some noise, but he just, you know, he hasn't, he's shown flashes. Don't get me wrong, but he's averaging, I don't know, five, six points a game. Uh, he turns the ball over a lot. Um, and I mean, he's, he's probably, probably the best defender on the team, but he just hasn't, he, he's, he's not given them, uh, what they need in terms of scoring and, uh, protecting the ball. I mean, he, he was the starting point guard for the first, I don't know, 12 or 15 games of the season. And then they just had to, they had to move on because he was turning the ball over too much. And so uh, I think strictly from a, from an expectation standpoint, after what we saw in the Bahamas in those exhibition games down there, I would say he's been, you know, he, he's, he's definitely uh, one of the top two or three, um, you know, most disappointing guys, uh, you know, that they've had now to be fair to him, you know, they've all played pretty well. Um, and so, you know, it's just, it's, it is what it is. Uh, he just hasn't, he, he, he hasn't, uh, lived up to the expectations that he established for himself, uh, down in the Bahamas. Well, Jason, we have to run, unfortunately, but this has been great. I appreciate, uh, you making the time tonight and, uh, good luck, uh, the rest of the way this season. All right. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. All right. We're back on the Chase Thomas podcast. I am now joined by somebody. I have his book, one of his several books, sitting about seven feet away from me, Brady versus Manning. It's Gary Myers. Gary, good evening, sir. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Chase. How are you doing tonight? I'm good. I'm good. I'm hoping if this goes well enough, I can get a signed copy of one of your other books. That uh... Even if it doesn't go well, I'll get you a signed copy. Okay. Okay. Like <laughs> but hopefully it goes well either way. Okay. Um, I I'm loved sure. Brady versus Manning. I loved the insight there. Um, and I'm going to get to some... Um, honestly, no, let's, you know what? Let's just start here. Um, okay. When you were researching this book... Um, and what you know about Tom Brady, because I don't know if you knew this or not, Gary, but uh, he's in the news a lot right now. Uh, what he's going to do this offseason, mm-hmm. would he really leave New England, would he go to Tennessee, would he go to the Chargers, whatever, is he going to stay to New England for a two-year deal, but they have to add some pieces. From what you know about Tom Brady, um, what makes you think that he's not going to go the Peyton route and go a different team for the last couple of years for a different Super Bowl run with someone else. What about Tom that, you know, makes you think that he would or would not do that? Well, you know, first of all, Chase, the, the situation with Peyton was completely different because uh, the Colts cut him 
Right. You know, they were in position to draft Andrew Luck. Peyton was coming off of four neck surgeries. And it didn't make any financial sense for the Colts to keep him. And he had to go find a new team. And, you know, he, he wanted to continue playing. I, I truly do not believe that all things being equal, that Tom will leave the Patriots. I, I think there's a lot of value in his mind to being a one-team guy. There's very few of those. These days, you know, even among the superstars, you know, guys usually don't get to play the entire career in one spot. But he has been underpaid uh, all these years. He hasn't taken a market value contract because he wanted the Patriots to use that money to help in other areas to keep the team Super Bowl competitive. I think he was very upset last year at, at the weapons that Bill Belichick put around him. They we're trying to make it work with Josh Gordon. They brought in Antonio Brown and, you know, both of them high risk, high reward players. And, and they both were gone, you know, very early in the season. So I, I think Tom wants his money this time, probably wants $30 million. I think he wants to hear a commitment from Belichick that he's going to improve the talent around him so they can indeed make another Super Bowl run. And if he doesn't hear what he wants, then I can see him leaving. But I, I really think, especially because the Patriots don't have a great alternative right now, they don't have a Jimmy Garoppolo sitting there waiting to take over. Um, I think they're going to work this out. I could be wrong. These are just my instincts. Um, that I really can't envision Tom in a different uniform. But, you know, once Joe Montana got traded, all bets were pretty much off. And uh, if Joe can get traded and and Jerry Rice can wind up in a bunch of different uniforms and Emmett Smith and Ronnie Lott and, and you name it, then it certainly can happen to Tom. I just don't think it will. What's the biggest difference personality wise from Peyton and Tom? Well, I will tell you this, that I knew them both fairly well before I did the book. Um, and I liked them both very much. What I found out in my reporting and research is that uh, as I got to know them better and spend time with them, that the public persona of Peyton is this gregarious, friendly, funny guy. And that Tom is reserved and, and very private and kind of standoffish. I, I will tell you that I think that the, the script needs to be flipped and that mm. I found Tom to be very giving of his time with me, very uh, a good storyteller, very anecdotal, very friendly, very funny. And that um, I found Peyton to be uh, very controlling. Uh, the fact that I was writing a, I was writing a, yeah, the fact that I was writing a book that was he was just being interviewed for it, but he wasn't in control of the project. I think that bothered him. Mm. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, Tom, I did two or three interviews with, I flew out to Denver to speak to Peyton and he gave me 20 minutes in a hallway. So, really? um, so take that, which you might now, I, I will say this, and I don't know this for sure, but about four months earlier is when the, the Broncos got embarrassed by the Seahawks in the Super Bowl mm. here in New York. And after the game in the, when, Peyton was on the podium 
after hearing several of his teammates say they were embarrassed by how they played, and, and you know, rightfully so, um, I asked Peyton that question, if he was embarrassed by what they had just done, and and the, the veins started popping out of his neck, and his face got all red, and he said, you know, embarrassed, that's, that's a bad uh, choice of words. You know, if you saw how those players were in the locker room after the game, you would never say we were embarrassed. You know, we tried as hard as we could. I wasn't questioning how hard they tried. I was going to say, that's not what you asked. <laughs> yeah, still exactly. embarrassed and uh, tried really hard, but you still got outclassed. Like, those, yeah. they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah. And then all I can think of is he's giving me this, you know, the dagger look is, uh, you know, I've already interviewed Brady for the book, but I haven't interviewed Peyton. I think I just blew my interview with Peyton. <laughs> and so when he came up the podium and I walked up to him and I had known him, since a couple of days before he was drafted, we were all, he was always on a first name basis with me. And I, I did like him. Um, so I went up to him and I had nothing, Chase, I had nothing to apologize for. I asked him a good question that elicited a very emotional response. But I said, Hey Peyton, you know, that's probably a poor choice of words when I was trying to ask you that. And I have to admit, I was being a little disingenuous there only because I was trying to salvage any chance I still had to interview him for my book because the book was much better having been able to talk to him, even if it was only for 20 minutes. But I, I think that might've clouded his, you know, uh, his feelings about me. Or, um, and I think eventually the only reason he did the interview was because the Broncos PR staff told him that Brady had already, uh, so consented and had, him if he did yeah, the that, interview. Yeah. And that he didn't want Brady being the only voice of the two in a book that was called Brady versus Manning. Yeah. So usually you can add in 20 minutes questions in with Peyton. And I got 15 questions in because he was giving me as generic and bland answers as possible, except on a few questions, you know, he gave me a little substance to it, but you know, can I tell you, this is not surprising at all to me based on what he's done post, NFL career I think he's such a more of a businessman than people think it like like you said where he has this SNL type deal and he he can be funny but it is not surprising at all that the guy who's thought about running for political office that um, has all these different um, investments and um, is very careful about what kind of post NFL job he has and like I, I just think he's a very cerebral person and seems like he's very PR conscious in that. Like he's mm-hmm. very protective of his brand, his like everything about him. Like I, I don't think that's surprising at all. Like I could 100% see Peyton being very anti-media and very anti being vulnerable to strangers because this dude wants to make sure that he is preserving his long-term trajectory like i think this guy wants to i I would not be surprised if he's governor of tennessee at some point or he's just i i think this is somebody who has a lot of big plans up in the air and uh is not uh, gonna shed light on anything that might hurt his hurt his uh his appearance because i think he very much loves that people seem to think that he's this fun jovial happy-go-lucky guy when he's far from it i i just have to tell you 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 cut out on me there for about 30 seconds I know you're taping this so that we can probably... Oh, sorry about that. No, I was just saying that, like, essentially, I think he is someone that is... 
he likes to believe that he's far more jovial mm-hmm. than he actually mm-hmm. is. And he is thinking, all right, I might go for Congress one day. I might be the NFL commissioner one day. I might mm-hmm. own a team one day. I think he's like the Michael Jordan aspect where it's like Michael Jordan's done like one interview in 30 years. And it was with like a cigar magazine. Um, I right. think Peyton's wired the same way where he is so business conscious and like how much money he can make and all of his different investments and everything else. I don't think he has any interest in shedding light to anybody about anything he actually feels about stuff. Like that's why I'm so curious about him on an ESPN doing Monday night football is I don't know if he'd be good. I don't know if he'd actually be harsh and funny. And I, I don't know. No, you know what? I think he actually would be really good because he would do a ton of, uh, prep work on it so he would know both teams inside out um i think when the light is on you know the camera's on i think the personality comes out again because he is very image conscious so he wants to portray that image of of a funny guy i mean he's he's great on those commercials um he was great on um what they call it payton's place or something like that on espn plus yeah yeah I mean, he was really good on that stuff. He's he's tremendous um, in those kind of situations. He was he was great on it. But SNL. he controls those things, right? Like those are yes, things that yes, he controls. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So here it is. I was writing a book that um, didn't just on the sheer numbers of what the record was against each other at that time. Um, it, it didn't put him in the situation where he dominated Tom, it was really the other way around. And so he was probably concerned about how he was going to come off on the book. That it was just a one-sided rivalry. Was I going to portray it like that? But I knew him well enough that we could have discussed that ahead of time. Right. And, and the the point I, I was trying to make in the book is that we're just not going to see this again for a very long time where two guys' careers pretty much run side-by-side side in terms of the years. Peyton started in 98, Tom took over in the third game of 2001, and then for the next 15 or so years, they were meeting in the regular season. They met very often in the playoffs. They were the two best quarterbacks in the league. However, you wanted to rank them for a very long period of time. Uh, they were in the same division initially, and then the Colts moved, but they because they always finished in first place. They played each other every year. It's going to be a long time before we see something like that. Um, and, and that was the point of my book, is, is that this era of the NFL was going to be remembered as Brady versus Manning. And I think to a certain extent, I, I, still, very, I still feel very strongly about that. Now, there's other things. You know, the Patriots have gone on over this 20-year period to be in a bunch more Super Bowls since I wrote that book. But if you're thinking about the two players that are going to be remembered from, say, 2000 or 2001 to 2015, it's Brady and Manning, and then you know Peyton retired. And if there's one rivalry, it's not a team versus team rivalry. It's a Brady versus Manning rivalry. And those kind of rivalries are very rare in the NFL because it's such a team-oriented sport. But that's what stands out. And... Um, and so it was really a lot of fun to, to write the book. Um, and again, I, I don't you know, there's certain possibility you think, okay, who, 
who would we say is, is Russell Wilson's? And it has to be somebody in the same conference because then you have yeah, a chance of playing Aaron every Rogers, year. I guess maybe. Yeah, Rodgers R- Rogers is a lot older than him. Yeah. You know, I thought maybe it could be Cam Newton, but that hasn't worked out. No. Yeah. You know, in the AFC, it could possibly be Lamar Jackson and Patrick Mahomes, or you know, throw Deshaun Watson in there. Maybe two out of those three. Maybe Kyle will, Murray <laughs> soon. Yeah, but uh, but Kyle Murray versus who? In the yeah. NFC, um, you know, because then you know Wilson has been in the league since 2012, so he's seven years older at least than him. And well, it and, seemed you know, like Aaron Kaepernick might be the answer here. Years ago, like it looked like it was going to be Kaepernick or somebody yeah. like that, and it just didn't. It didn't work out. Right. Like that. So it's it, it's very hard. Exactly. It's it's very hard for this to happen. Um. And and that's why I think that the Brady Manny thing was something that, you know, football fans enjoyed while it was happening and now should consider themselves fortunate that they witnessed to, witness to it and, and basically cherish and embrace it because it was two of the top five quarterbacks, no matter how you want to rank them. And I got Brady and Montana basically one and one A, you know, flip a coin. Did you tell Peyton that? Did I tell Peyton that? No. <laughs> um, <laughs> You're a nicer guy than me. I think I probably would have mentioned it, especially after everything and giving me 15 minutes. I've been like, hey, by the way, uh, you're not in my 1A, 1B. Great stuff. Yeah, Top well, 10 player, but uh, you're you're like a solid four. I wonder if that bothers yeah, him. Well, here's the thing is that um, the last three times that he faced uh, Tom in an AFC championship game, he beat him. Mm-hmm. Um, Indianapolis in 2006. And then twice when he went to Denver, I'm trying to remember, was it 2012 or 13? It's the so other, I should, I should, like I should know because there was, the yeah. Super Bowl was here. I should know what year that was. But was that 15? It wasn't that long ago. I think that was like 15. Well, that was the second time in Denver that he beat him. Yeah. He beat him twice in Denver. Because I think um, there was a gap year. The year he beat him was the year where they had the number one offense, right? That first one where their offense was just... Ridiculous. Yeah, right. That's when he threw 55 touchdown yeah, yeah, passes, yeah. but they lost 43 days in the Super Bowl. And then, you know, Peyton was just a shell of himself um, when they when they beat um, the Panthers, Carolina in that Super yep. Bowl. You know, he'd come back in the last game of the season when Osweiler was having trouble, and then he wound up. He was just along for the ride. They were just asking him at that point not to lose the game. He had like nine TD, 17 picks that year. He was awful for the majority of the year and in this, the whole playoff run. He wasn't good. No, he wasn't. And I think he had um, a couple of nice throws, if I remember correctly. They beat San Diego in the divisional round, I think. Or was it Pittsburgh? Maybe it was, it was Pittsburgh. It was Pittsburgh, I think. Um, he had a big third down throw. But... You know, for the most, and he had a couple of early touchdown passes in the championship game against the Patriots. They weren't very long because at that point his arm strength was pretty much gone. But he he had turned into a game manager at that juncture in his career. And in the Super Bowl, they just didn't want him to lose it because the Denver's defense was so strong that year. Um, so, but you know, I think having that second Super Bowl championship, no matter how it was earned, um put Peyton, at least in my mind, on a little bit of a different level 
because there's so many quarterbacks that have won one. And I know he has all those records or maybe had all those records until Drew, Drew Brees broke them. But um, I, I think getting that second championship raised his stature somewhat. Again, maybe just in my eyes, but I, I thought he needed that second one on his on his resume because how can you be as great as he had been for the majority of his career and only won one? Mm-hmm. And he had pretty good teams around him. Um, in Indianapolis yeah, and in Denver. That might be Aaron Rodgers' career, too. And Brees at this point only has the yeah. one. So that just shows how, how amazing it is that Brady's got six and he's been to nine. When you when you look at Manning, Rodgers, and, and Brees combined have four championships. And, and like I said, the last one by Peyton, you know, goes on his record, but it's not like he was Peyton Manning winning those championships. He was, you know, Trent, uh, I don't want to say Trent Dilfer, but he was, it was bad. Like it was just yeah. objectively bad. I'm sure even he would be like, yeah, I just didn't have anything. Like I was, yeah, I was well, quick. no, it, it was, it was physical. I mean, it yeah. was all physical mentally. He was so sharp as ever. It's just, right. you know, he had, I think a foot or a leg injury. And then, um, his arm strength had, had dissipated. He was just a shell of himself. So I give him credit. He won three playoff games. Um, I mean, they, they won three playoff games when um, he was smart enough not put, to put his team in position uh, where he caused them to lose. Right. Um, and he got to walk away like Elway did with a championship. Now, Elway, in, in his last game, was a Super Bowl MVP. I was going to say, he dismantled the Falcons, my Atlanta Falcons, in a yeah. very, very bad fashion. It was it was not good. No. <laughs> uh, but, you know, and Elway probably could have continued to play, but I think he realized at that point his body was breaking down. And he, you know that Elway felt like he just couldn't do it anymore if he walked away from the opportunity to try to be the first team two and three in a row. And, and he just turned his back on that. Cause I think he knew he just couldn't, he couldn't do it anymore. I think he also probably knew how crazy it was that he went back to back or he was just like, why well, ruin a good thing? I don't have much left anyway. Let's just walk out on a high note. Cause he does seem very ego driven. A lot of these quarterbacks are where it's just like, you know what? I'm just going to go out back to back. That's all I'm going to be remembered. And, 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 and he knew the chase. He knew that Terrell Davis was the one that, you know, um, that offense was built around mm-hmm. and, and, and he knows he wouldn't have won two titles without Davis. And that's what gets Davis into the hall of fame. Cause he only had like three really good regular seasons, but he was amazing in that Super Bowl victory against green Bay. And he was, he was a Super Bowl MVP of that one. And he, I don't remember what his totals were in the Atlanta game, but he had a really good regular season so um, I, I think Elway knew at that point that um, why tempt fate, go out on top rather than hang on for another year on what would have to be considered the off chance of winning three in a row. Um, he had more left in the tank at the end than Peyton did, but I, I'm not sure it was anything more than than uh, Elway being on a quarter of a tank and and Peyton being pretty close to empty. 
what do you think Peyton ultimately does next? He's been laying low for a couple of years based mm-hmm. on what you've heard and um, what you know about him. What would you guess Peyton Manning does in the next couple of years? Well, I think that um, if he ever wanted to get into broadcasting, now that Eli's not playing anymore and he wouldn't have to broadcast any of Eli's games, um, I think now would be the time that would be most attractive to him. But I still don't think he's going to do it. I don't think he wants to do that. I think he wants to be Elway. And he probably wouldn't mind being Elway in Denver because even though he was only in Denver for four years, that's where his family is living now. They've settled in Denver. I think he wants to run a team, uh, be a part owner of the team, something like that. Um, I think it's Cleveland, though. I still – that dude's going to follow Haslam. Those two are really close. If you go back right. to the Peyton Manning, Jimmy Haslam stuff, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll say that that if Peyton made a call to Jimmy Haslam, who has shown he's totally fine blowing up the organization year in, year yeah. out. If Peyton Manning called him up and was like, hey, I'm ready to be your John Elway, I think uh, Haslam would be like, well, uh, Mr. Barry, it's been great. Uh, Stavansky, yeah. guys, appreciate all the hard work, but uh, Peyton Manning's coming into the office, and this is now his thing. Oh, that, that part would be a given. The hard part is, will Peyton ever make that phone call? (laughs) I don't know that he will. I I don't know that he wants to to go to Cleveland. Nothing against Cleveland, but I I would think... I think it's Cleveland, Anthony. It's just the guy. He would trust the owner. I mean, uh, Peyton's just so cerebral that I think he's just like, if I went to work for Haslam, Haslam would basically work for me. I would have carte blanche. Yeah, but I also think you have to consider, like, where does he want to live? And I can see, obviously, like I mentioned before, Denver... I think the two other places would be Tennessee and New Orleans. Uh, you know, we all know he's from New Orleans and he went to school in Tennessee and he considered Tennessee before he signed with Denver. So I, I think the idea of moving back to Tennessee is something that could be attractive to him. So if, if I was I could also say, see Miami. Yeah, yeah, I think I know that he... I don't know if he still has it, but he did have a place in a in a apartment uh, building in South Beach. Yeah, that he had for a while. Now again, I don't know if he still has it, and it's not really close to where the Dolphins' facility is. But um, and you know, Marino had the chance to do that, and he kept the job for about forty eight hours, if you remember, <laughs> uh, about fifteen years ago. Yeah, uh, but I don't think. It, Peyton's work ethic is much different than Danny's. You know, Dan, Dan likes being Dan Marino and, and having people just that Dan is the king of, of Miami and he doesn't have to work very hard for people to make a big deal about him. He doesn't have to work very hard to make a bunch of money. His name is, is so golden there that, um, to be the director of football operations is a lot of work right? and it's hard work. And I think he works part-time for the organization now, but he's certainly not in a decision-making um, position. I, I think he's more of a consultant type where Peyton, Peyton's not going to be a consultant. If, if Peyton gets involved, he's running the show, director of football operations, executive vice president of, of football operations, general matter, whatever you want to call it he's at the top of the football organizational chart. Um, maybe you've moved a piece of the team thrown in there. And I think that, you know, if he ever told Steve Ross 
that that's what he wanted in Miami. I think Steve would would do that in a second. Uh, just like, as you mentioned, Chase said, Jimmy Haslam would do it. Um, and they'd probably do it in, in Tennessee as well. But other than those three spots, um, I mean, there were others that would probably be attractive to him. But those are the three that really stand out to me as, as being the most logical. And I'm glad you mentioned Miami because that does make a lot of sense. Who has been your favorite athlete that you've covered in your career? Who do you actually, who have you found the most interesting? Well, that, that's two different questions. My favorite athlete who I ever covered was Everson Walls of the Cowboys when I worked in Dallas for eight years. He's the only player I ever covered that to this day I actually consider him a friend. Mm. And I've had great relationships with a number of players. Um, actually, I'll take that back. Carl Banks is another one that okay. these days I, can, I consider him a good friend. Um, but Everson and I were um, relatively the same age when I moved to Dallas in 1981. He was a rookie. I was out of school for about five years at that point. And we just kind of gravitated towards each other. I was new in town. He was a rookie. He was a great player. I was trying to become a great writer. And um, he became probably the best source I've ever had. I'm not talking out of school now since it's a long time ago. Um, I always tell people, and I talk to classes, I said, every beat writer needs an Edison Walls to help them because he was, he was, he was just great with me. He just told me so much stuff that he really – of any play I've ever covered, um, he was probably more influential in helping me advance than, than anybody, um, simply because of the information that he gave me that was invaluable. So he would be first for me, just of a player that I really enjoyed covering and, and really liked as a person. Um, and there are, there are several like that who I, different circumstances that they were a neighbor. If I went to school with them, um, I, I would have stayed friends with them after their playing careers are over because we really got along well in the locker room and had some nice talks. The, the list is almost too long to mention. You know, Drew Pearson, I was like that with Phil Sims has always been one of my favorite guys. Troy Aikman. I got to know. I was already back in Phil New York. Seems awesome. I'm also a big Chris Sims guy, so maybe that's part of it. But Phil Sims seems like someone who's actually like a fun dude to talk to and seems like he is. Yeah. He is. And I've known him since nineteen seventy nine, which shows you how both old both of how old both of us <laughs> are. But um yeah, I've I've always enjoyed Phil and, and we're still very friendly today. I mean the most intriguing, fun slash difficult athlete I ever covered was Lawrence Taylor. Because and Michael Strahan, I put <laughs> yeah, I know, but I also put Strahan in that category because oh. if they, if they were in the mood to talk, they were tremendous. I mean, you can see it in Strahan on TV. But if he wasn't in the mood to talk, he could be. Um, I don't want to say any nasty words on your podcast here. You but, can say whatever, uh, man. This is a free flowing conversation here. Yeah, we, we can say uh, anything. Yeah. Uh, I just say that Strahan can be incredibly difficult and um, and not enjoyable at all to be around. But I, I had so many good talks with him over the years when we just started talking about nothing. And he was just in a talkative mood, and you know, I put the tape recorder down, and we would just, you know, 
just talking about everything. Uh, he's a really bright guy. And um, I never thought that he would become a TV star like he has. Hmm. Only because I didn't know that's what, that's what he wanted to do. I always thought Tiki was going to be the guy. And Tiki's another one. But I kind of had a love-hate relationship with him towards the end of his career. And we, we went at it pretty good. In fact, we got into a really bad screaming match in the locker room in Dallas after he came. Really? Uh, uh, I'll tell you why in a second. But I thought Tiki was going to be the guy that um, that became the big TV star. And I really wasn't sure what Strahan's, what kind of ambition he had after he finished playing. But obviously, he's become the big star. Tiki had his chance at NBC and it didn't work out. And Now he's, he's very good on the radio. He's got a national radio show, but I thought Tiki was going to be a mega star on the Today Show, and and so did he. You know? But the, the issue I had with him was he leaked a story to the New York Times early in the 2006 season that he was going to retire after the year. And I wrote a really critical column saying, you just don't announce that in the middle of the year. You announce it in training camp, or you announce it towards the end of the season, but he was such a big name and he was having such a good season that he kind of hijacked the season from the rest of the team. And it's all anybody talked about for the rest of the year. So I wrote a intentionally. Not necessarily. I I don't think that he intended for it to come out in the times, the times attended an event that Tiki was speaking at. And somehow, I don't know if Tiki said it, uh, when he was talking to a bunch of businessmen or, or, he just said it to the Times off to the side, and and he acted like he was surprised that the Times wrote the story. Um, so I was just really critical in a column saying that it was a really selfish thing for him to do. Now all the whole season, everybody's just going to be talking about him, and you know, it wasn't fair to the rest of the players that they'd have to answer questions about Tiki the rest of the year. There's still 12 games to go. That either you do it in training camp and you get it out of the way, you let people talk about it for three or four days, and then move on and get ready for the season. But by doing it mid-season, it just magnified the announcement. So um, after I write this column, I, I didn't see him again until like three days later. And the Giants, it was either a Sunday or a Monday night game. I think it was a Monday night game in Dallas at Texas Stadium. And... I can't even remember who won the game. Um, but Tiki's talking by his locker afterwards, and I was standing there listening to him. And then when the group broke up, he just started screaming at me. And What's that like when a professional well, athlete, let me just give you a little especially a professional football player? <laughs> yeah, a little context first, because in 2002, I started working on a TV show on the Yes Network uh, the Yankee station here in New York. And, and Tiki was on it with me. We did it on Tuesday, which was the player's day off. And he did the show for the first three years. So I used to hang out with him in the studio every Tuesday for about five hours. And we became pretty good friends. So I think he felt a little betrayed by me that I would Mm. write a column like that, but I never let personal feelings or relationships get in the way of my job that those who most of them understood it was never personal. And right you know, our relationship wasn't going to protect them. And I had a right, I had to be guided by my conscience and, and doing the job properly and not protecting a guy just because I liked them. And so when he's screaming, now I wasn't intimidated physically, even though 
he easily could have just beat the crap out of me. I mean, he's a really strong guy. Um, but I was never concerned about him taking a swing at me or pushing me or anything like that. It was just, he was in a rage. And either I could shout back at him or I can just stand there and just kind of shrug my shoulders and let him show that it really didn't bother me. And it, it really did not bother me. Um, and I think that bothered him. And I just let him get him out of the system. I said, are you done now? Are you done? And um, he, he, just, he just went on because he, he could see he wasn't getting to me. So he kept trying. And then I just kind of shrugged my shoulders and walked away and said, see it and um we we didn't talk the rest of the year in fact the daily news you know i was working for the daily news at that point um i didn't write about that at all there were some others i think as notes in their stories the next day you know wrote about this confrontation between me and tiki but we didn't write about it in the daily news and i i certainly wasn't going to write about it but it became a pretty big story in New York for a couple of days on talk radio and whatnot. So the paper asked me to, to write a first person story about what happened. And, you know, he was, he was yelling at me, you know, um, I can't remember what he was saying, but then he went on the radio the next day and he called me an idiot. Um, so I write this column. I said, there's only one person who's allowed to call me an idiot. And that's my wife. <laughs> You know, and I deserve it whenever she does that. But there's no football player that's ever going to call me an idiot, and and me not at some point at least respond. So I wrote this column in the paper, just explaining that I had a good relationship with Tiki, that I worked with him on TV for a bunch of years, and um, you know, I was really disappointed that he couldn't take a lot of criticism. Well, we had a great cartoonist at the Daily News then. He was a cartoonist slash uh, characterist. Is that the word? He did great. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm not um, sure either. Um, it, it wasn't straight cartoons. It was kind of like exaggerated caricatures. Mm. That's what it was, caricatures. Okay. So they had um, me and Kiki. He drew uh, a cartoon a character of me and Tiki in a ring boxing. And that was on the back page of the Daily News. I still have that paper. It was hysterical. <laughs> My kids were very embarrassed by it, you know, but um, I thought it was pretty funny. And I'm not necessarily of the opinion that any publicity is good publicity, mm. but um, let's just say that the fact that Tiki and I went at it and I had kind of the last word because I wrote, a 1,200-word story about it in the paper, just explaining, you know, my side of things and what I, why I thought it was a valuable column and, and newsy and and um, and explaining why I was surprised at his reaction, but also explaining what his reaction was. I, I thought that um, I handled it very professionally, and and he didn't because rather than kind of saying, "Hey, let's go." talk off to the side or I'll call you tomorrow. We can discuss this. He just, you know, lost his cool. And, um, and I didn't. And so I thought I handled it much better than him. Now I, I, I mean, Tiki and I are, are good these days. I mean, we, we've become very friendly. We've kind of laughed it off, 
But when he was hosting this morning t- uh, radio show, this was probably like five years ago, he started ripping Coughlin on Twitter. Hmm. And that had been his constant theme since he retired. Coughlin drove him into retirement. He couldn't take it anymore. So I just kind of well, tweeted, there might be some vindication there based on how Tom Coughlin just ended things in uh, Jacksonville. I, I know you're right. So I just tweeted back saying, there goes Tiki again, ripping Coughlin. You know, had that work out last time. Tiki quits the Giants win a Super Bowl the first year without him. So his radio producer called me the next morning, like at 730. And he goes, you know, Tiki wants you to come on to talk Uh-oh. about what you tweeted last night. So I said, sure, I don't care. So <laughs> Chase, he just starts off screaming at me on the radio. Mm. Doesn't get, doesn't let me get a word in. Why do you have this vendetta against me? Why, why do you have to keep talking about me and writing about me? I said, Tiki, I never think about you. I never write about you. I was Brutal. just responding. <laughs> yeah, I, I was just I said I was just responding to something you had written, and I thought it was really a cheap shot, and just something that if you if you have, if you can't criticize Coughlin, you've got nothing to talk about. And he starts screaming again. I said, "Listen, you guys asked me to come on. If you're going to keep yelling, I'm just going to hang up the phone." I said, "If you're going to be professional about this on the air, or I'm out of here." Because I'm not going to be yelled at by you at 7.30 in the morning. <laughs> and he just kept on yelling. And I said, Tiki, I'm, at, I'm done. And I just hung up the phone. And, um, of course, you know, people heard that. Even though the show wasn't on in New York, you know, they, um, um, they put it on their, on their website. And I, people heard it. And they, they started writing about that. You know, that Myers and Tiki were going at it again. <laughs> it was just the whole thing was just it was just ridiculous. It, it was ridiculous. But That's um, amazing. Have you gotten? Yeah, I well, mean, we we went through different time warps there, and like in between with Tiki and uh, Strahan and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But then we went to Brady and Peyton. But you haven't mentioned Eli at all. Have you? Like he's kind of with his career um, now being over. Did you get to know him at all um, in the last couple of years? Well, I, I've known Eli since 2004, reading, you know, a couple of days before the draft, the whole thing with the Chargers and whatnot. And I've known Archie forever. I, I will say this, Eli knows me. He knows my name. I mean, I was around him for 16 years. He never once addressed me by name. In fact, the only... I just think that I never heard him address any of the writers by name hmm. except except one, and it was kind of in a kidding, derisive way, but... Who he, was it? Uh, Steve Serby from The Post. Mm, okay. Uh, and he had, you know, I had a good relationship with all of us, and everybody um, liked him. It's just that he never really let you get to know him, and... Um, Seems like that rents in that family. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I thought I thought Peyton was much more forthcoming for most of his career. Um, he changed the last three, four years. There was no doubt about it. But um, I, I really did enjoy talking to Peyton during the early portion of his career. And I got to know him fairly well because I used to go to Indianapolis and do stories on him. And um, Eli is just a, a, a different guy. And 
if he had if he never had to talk to the media, he'd be fine. But he was always very friendly and accommodating, and you can always talk to him. It's just that he never really gave you a good look inside. And so right up until the day that he retired, and I talked to him to, at the press conference by myself for a little bit afterwards, he never he never answered a question using my name. And it's not an ego thing. I just thought it was bizarre. You know, you're on the guy for 16 years, and he never addresses you by name. And But I didn't take it personally because I never heard him call any other writer by name except for Serby. And it wasn't, it was just like, ah, Serby, you know, what are you doing? That kind of thing. It, it was It was never, you know, in, in, a, in a friendly way where a guy will use your name in an answer. You know what I mean? And yeah. um, so, and, and Peyton was incredible about that. All Peyton had to do was meet you once and he, he never forgot your name. He used to call all the out-of-town riders by name, which it was, it was really amazing that he you would think remember. You everybody? Oh, Peyton read, reads everything. Interesting. Um, if he ever played in New York, he might have killed one of the riders. <laughs> because he... he <laughs> yeah, I mean, time with the Jets not, a couple of years ago. I'm not sure if the... Uh, yeah, never mind. Uh, I'm not going to mention this writer by name. Never mind. I'm not going to go down the road. No, I want to hear what you're going to say. Uh, there's a certain Jets beat writer, Manesh. Oh, actually. okay, sure. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I worked with him for a number of years. I think it might be referring to. Yeah. At the Daily News. Yeah, okay. Um, now, I don't mean that Peyton would have killed somebody literally, although I think that he would have had numerous confrontations with the media in New York. Right. He he worked in a in a town in Indianapolis where he he, he was like the mayor of Indianapolis. He's got a and statue, nobody... right? <laughs> I'm sorry? Doesn't he have a statue now? Does he have a statue? Or yeah, there's a statue outside yeah. of uh, whatever they call it. Lucas Stadium. Oil Lucas Stadium. Oil. Yeah. yeah. Um, Denver is a tough media town, but by the time he got there, there was only one newspaper. Um, when LA was there, there was two. There was the Rocky Mountain News, which isn't there anymore, and Denver Post. Mm. They were so competitive that Elway's rookie year, they staked out his house on Halloween to find out what candy he was giving to the kids. And then they wrote about it. Oh, wow. That, that's how tough a, that that's, and the Broncos are still that important in Denver. It's just yeah. They're still a football town mm-hmm. with only one newspaper there and no competition. I don't think they're as crazy as they used to be, but if, if Peyton was here and he got the same treatment in the papers that every other, every other athlete has gotten, um, it could have gotten ugly at times because hmm. he's very thin skinned when it comes to that stuff as evidenced by his reaction to me after I asked him that question at the Super Bowl. I mean, he played crummy. The first snap of the game went over his head for a safety. It wasn't his fault, but he didn't play well in that game. And instead of taking his medicine afterwards, you know, he tried to shift the blame to a question he didn't like rather than the fact that, his team got its doors blown off and was never in the game. Do you think athletes have changed at all as time has gone on from what you've seen when you first got started to how they are now? Has there been any big change that you've noticed on how they interact with reporters, how they are in general or athletes all that different? Like is Aaron Rodgers wired all that differently than Dan Marino? Like, have you noticed anything like that in your career? Um, I think I can answer the question this way. 
when I was first getting going doing this, players were, I mean, they were making a lot more money than the average American, but it wasn't like they were making a million dollars. The most Lawrence Taylor ever made in the season, I think was around two and a half to three million, the most. Now those guys are, that's like their taxes on their off-season workout bonuses. You know? Um, so I, I, my point here is going to be that, and this was probably more true in Dallas when I was there, that players needed the media to help them portray a positive image because they wanted to make money on the side and endorsements. Mm-hmm. And they needed to be very like they need to be thought of as likable and marketable so that the local car dealership on LBJ expressway in Dallas would ask Drew Pearson or Tony Dorsett to shoot a commercial where they can make $25,000 on top of the $250,000 they're making in a salary. And so percentage wise, that was, you know, you get two or three of those in the off season, you know, that's, you know, it can be, they can make up to like a third of their salary with endorsements. Now players are making so much money that even getting, and I'm just picking a number out of the air, even if they were paid $200,000 to do an endorsement or $50,000 to make a, a speech when they're making, you know, and I'm going to use quarterbacks and the great players, you know, when they're making 10 to $20 million a year and, the, the elite quarterbacks are making 20 to 30 million a year. What does $50,000 mean to them? It might've meant something to them. I'm sure it meant something to them when they were growing up or when they were in college, but when you're making $20 million, you don't need the media to portray you as a great guy because you don't really care. I mean, nobody wants to be known as a schmuck, but um, you don't need to be, you don't need the media to help you out. And now, you know, with Instagram and Twitter and whatever else social media avenues there are or platforms there are to, to get their message across, they don't need the media at all. They make their own announcements on Twitter, the Players' Tribune, uh, Instagram, Facebook. Um, so in the past, when a guy had a point he wanted to make, you know, whether it was taking a shot at management that he wanted more money or, or, or criticizing an opponent or, you know, something more positive. He just takes out his laptop and, and does it himself and doesn't have to worry about anything being lost in translation or getting misquoted because it's pretty hard to misquote yourself on Twitter, you know? Um, so I think that's, what's changed is that the relationship between the media and, and the, and the players is, is much different that it used to be much closer because we used each other. Yeah. You know, I used the players for stories and they used me to help them. Uh, you know, I wasn't directly trying to help them make money, but if I wrote a positive story about. It was in their best interest to talk to you. Essentially. Exactly. And now it's just not. And now it's not because they have nothing, they have nothing to gain from it financially. And if they have mm-hmm. nothing to gain from financially, they feel they have nothing to gain period. Um, so I also think there's uh, like not, I don't think this is fair, but I also don't think they trust them as much. 
um, part of the reason they did the Players' Tribune stuff and just the athletes that I've been around. It's just you're constantly looking over your shoulder and just wonder. Like, it's more of like this person's out to get me or everybody's mm-hmm. out to ruin my stuff. And um, it's just more of a negative perception, it feels like. Um, last thing, and then we'll we'll go. This is a, a two-parter. Um, one, okay. what was your favorite book to write and two what's next on the on the publishing side of things ah well i'm not going to answer the second question <laughs> the, only reason not, the only reason is i actually um i'm in talks with a publisher to write a book i'm really excited about and what happened to eugene robinson in the falcon super bowl game uh against the Denver broncos the full story for larry myers that that is not the book. Um, <laughs> that that was that was an amazing story. But that's maybe a, the next maybe book. A story. We wouldn't rule it out. Yeah, no. My favorite book to write. Um, listen, I love the Brady Manning book, and it's been the most successful of my books. Um, but I think the book that I really enjoyed writing the most was my first book, which was The Catch about Dwight Clark's catch mm-hmm. in the, and, and the reason I say that is, um, that was, I got to Dallas in December of 81. It was for a, a podcast for another day. I'll explain to you why I actually took over the Cowboy beat with three games to go in the season, um, which was very difficult because it wasn't like I was already in Dallas. I moved from New York to do that, but it was the, the catch game was like the third or fourth game that I covered after moving to the Dallas morning news. And so doing that book, how many, 19, uh, 25 or 26 years later, um, and getting to retrace my steps of the early portion of my career and reconnecting with all those cowboy players that I, I really enjoyed covering. And, and then I got to know, I knew Joe Montana while he was playing. Because when I worked in Dallas, I got to travel a lot. So I did a lot of stuff with the Niners. Um, and so I knew Joe, but I got to know him really well. And I got to know Dwight really well. And I'm, I'm so sad about what happened with him. Um, did you talk to him at so, all in the last couple of years? Um, you know, I spent a lot of time with Dwight doing the book. And I might have talked to him twice. The book came out in 09. And I might have talked to him twice or emailed with him after that, but nothing, uh, I think he, he died in 2018. I don't think I had any contact with him in the last five years of his life. And, and certainly not after he was diagnosed, I texted him once. He didn't get back to me. I'm not even sure I had the right phone number because it was a number that I had for him when I did the book and, you know, 10 years had passed. So mm. he might've changed the number. Um, I, it was just so sad when he was diagnosed and, you know, nobody knew how long um, he would live. I mean, Steve Gleason has lived with this for a long time already, and everybody's rooting for somehow to become a cure for it. And, um, but Dwight, between the time he was diagnosed and, and when he passed away, it was only a couple of years. Yeah. Um, but I, so I think, you know, spending time with him and Joe and Ronnie Lott and some of those, those great players from those 49er teams. And, and the book was as much about the game as it was about the players and what's, what happened to them 
after the game and, and the impact it had on their lives, you know, obviously it had a big impact on with Joe and Dwight. That was the game that sent them to their first Super Bowl. Start really started the 49ers dynasty, but it was really the beginning of the end of the Tom Landry era Cowboys. So I, I wrote a lot about that, and it was just a real. I really enjoyed doing that book, and it, and it, of course because it was my first, and so the whole process was was new to me and I figured out how to do books by that. If I had that book to do over again, it would be much better. I thought it was very good, but it would be much better now that I, I feel I kind of have a formula in my head, how to do it. If that makes sense, you know, um, even with the same, even with the same material, exactly the same material, I think I would write it better because I learned from some mistakes that I made in that book just in terms of structure and, and making sure I didn't, I, what I tried to do in that book was weave the game around stories about the players. And so it was, it was really hard to do. And it's hard for me to even explain. So everybody who's listening, I, I suggest you go out and buy that book so you can see what I'm talking about. But, um, you know, I would give game detail and then I'd segue into, you know, stories about how tough Ronnie Lott was that he once, you know, had his half of his son surgically removed rather than having surgery that would have left, kept him out for, you know, six weeks by cutting the tip of his thumb off. He was able to just bandage it up and didn't miss a game. So I would kind of segue from Ronnie Lott making a big play in that game to telling a story about Ronnie Lott and then picking up the game in the next chapter. So it was a little difficult to follow. And I just think I would have been able to structure it better now with the experience that I have writing books. But uh, I really have enjoyed, you know, not to give you a rundown of all of them, but my second book was Coaching Confidential. And each chapter was about a different coach and, and how he dealt with the pressure of being an NFL head coach and so each chapter was so different than the other I'll one. I'll go ahead because... and tell you that's the one I want uh, with the, the autograph copy. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, Gary. You you want the coaching confidential? Yeah, I want the coaching confidential. You can, you can have them all. Uh, I can have them all? Them. Okay, I'm here you, for it. You can you, you can have them all. And so Brady versus Manning was number three. I, I did a book that I was really inspired by my relationship with my son. And when I coached his baseball team, this one was my first coach. And it was about quarterbacks and their dads. And um, it was really geared towards middle school and high school kids. And I like to tell people there was a life lesson in every chapter. And um, some of the relationships were, you know, fathers being helicopter parents. Um, if you know that term where they... Oh, I think like, it's only Flacco. increasing. I think we're just getting more and more of those, honestly. Yeah. Joe Flacco's dad was very hands-on. Hmm. Um, some of the dads like Phil Sims's dad would never throw him a compliment. And he had a drinking problem that Phil talked about to me for the first time. In fact, Chris Sims called me to thank me for writing that in the chapter about his dad, about Phil, because there was stuff that Phil told me that he didn't, that Chris didn't know. And it was the first time that Phil actually went public with it and he thought it was something that Phil wanted to get off his chest, but never really had the platform to do. Mm. And I went into the interview with Phil thinking I was going to write about his relationship with, you know, his sons, Chris and Matt and how neither one of them ever 
came close to achieving what Phil did. And when I first asked Phil to talk about his relationship with his own dad, and he told me about growing up in Louisville and, and how tough his father was and how he had a drinking issue and would disappear for days and uh, would never give him any positive reinforcement. Um, I, I thought it was so compelling that I changed the focus of the chapter to Phil and his own dad rather than Phil being a dad. But I, I was able to make the transition about what Phil learned about from his own father and why he was such a different father to his own kids. And, um, so I, I really, I, that book was, was fascinating for me to write. And, you know, I did a chapter on Montana and his two, his two sons who played college football, they, they were such in the shadow of Joe and there was such pressure being Joe's son that either in pop Warner, one of the two boys and they're relatively close in age. On the back of the jersey, instead of having Montana, they had Wallace, which was their mom's maiden name, Jennifer Wallace. Mm. Um, that uh, and, and she was relatively famous herself. Joe met her doing the Noxzema commercial, the shaving cream commercial, early in his career. That, that's where he met her, and I think she was a model. And um, so she she was pretty well known as well. But on the football field, having Montana on the back of the jersey in the Bay Area the boys felt that it was working against them that, you know, coaches will say, I'm just, you know, just because they're Joe Montana's kids, I'm not going to give them any special favors. And it actually worked against them because the coaches were really tough on them. And so they didn't want to be known as Joe Montana's kids. And then the last book I did, I, I did a book on the Cowboys and how they run their business. And I spent a lot of time with Jerry Jones. Um, and uh, to me, if you're interested in, in the behind the scenes on how this team hasn't been in the Super Bowl in a quarter of a century, but is now worth $5 billion after Jerry paid one, uh, um, $140 million for it in 1989, and it's now worth $5 billion and they haven't won anything in 25 years. Uh, it, to me, it, there's a lot of fascinating stuff in there about um, how they've marketed themselves, not only in Dallas, but across the country and, and worldwide. So, Chase, I will send you all of them. I am. I'm excited. I, I Brady versus Manning is one of my favorites, and um, I'm going to hold you to it. So, okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been great, Gary. I have taken way too much of your time this evening, but I've very much enjoyed doing this tonight. Um, we'll have to do it again soon and swap some more stories and all that kind of stuff. So um, is there anything that you would like to plug before you get out of here? Uh, no, it's just, I'm, I'm working for Sports Illustrated now. Um, I've, been, I've been doing that since November, and I'm, it's actually a, a little bit of a career change for me that um, I'm managing their 32 team writers. We, we have a site in there that is, we have a writer for each team. So I'm trying to mentor some of the younger ones and I do some editing and story ideas and stuff. I, I got really tired of writing about the league on a day-to-day basis. I had done it since 1978. And um, I just didn't want to do it anymore. And I'm saving whatever writing I have left in me, and I, I still have a bunch. I'm saving it for my next book. And at some point, I will tell you what the next book is. But I'm not, not going to tell Eugene you. Not the Eugene Robinson Super Bowl story, folks. It's not the Eugene Robinson. <laughs> so you're a big Falcons guy, huh? Yeah. 
And I still yeah. just love that story. That's just the all time of getting the the award, like the best person oh, award, and having to give it back right after. It, everything is amazing about that story. He, giving up an eighty yard bomb to Rod Smith, oh, like everything it, about that story was just out of a movie. It's incredible. I, I love and, that story. and his family had just come to town in Miami, yeah. and I, I mean, it was just. I was too young to appreciate it at that point because I was yeah. born in 91. So I was. Well, you know, there's nothing really to appreciate about that. Story. No, you appreciate a story like that. I appreciate crazy stories, Gary. I'm all about yeah. weird stories and how they affect. Um, it's just a reminder that sports are dumb and uh, crazy things <laughs> happen. And you just, uh, you never know. You never know who's going to get popped for. Well, you know, uh, I'll tell you yeah. this. I don't know if you're aware of this. He gets back to the hotel and he's distraught after what happened. You know, his family's in town and he goes out and. And does what he did. Dan Reese had Reggie White sit down with him. Um, you know, Reggie being an extremely religious person, and, and I, I don't know if he was a pastor or or a preacher or whatever, but um, Eugene was so distraught that Dan was beside himself. He didn't know what to do, so he had he had Reggie try to calm him down. Interesting. Um, and you know, I think Eugene has been. I think he still might be the analyst on the Panthers radio games uh, broadcast, he, he kind of made a nice recovery from that. Yeah. Cause that's a, a, that's a hard thing to, yeah. 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 A bad moment. What a time to have a bad moment. The night before <laughs> the Super Bowl. I would have been a lot more upset if that happened, like in the Kyle Shanahan Super Bowl. I mean, that was already terrible enough as it is, but like well, yeah, where I'm right. old enough to just know what's going on. But at that point I was, yeah. I was young and it was just not on my radar. It was just, yeah, I got and, older and I was like, wait, what happened? And yeah, no, and I don't even know where dive. Reggie, see, Eugene had played with Reggie in Green Bay and Somehow, I don't know if Reggie was in town for the Super Bowl or or Dan just found a way to track Reggie down to get him on the phone, but he felt like he was the only one that would be able to kind of talk him off the ledge at that point. I mean, and then he was just, I mean, the Falcons were terrible in the game, but uh, was it Rod Smith that beat Eugene for that? I can't remember. I'm pretty remember, sure it was but, Rod Smith. Yeah. Um, he's still chasing him. I mean, he was so far behind him. <laughs> okay well that's enough right. uh, okay yeah we don't need all to go right. that far <laughs> yeah i know 28 to 3 is all there's one that's most uh still sticks in your head but yeah um it is what it is it happened yeah and uh the falcons were able to uh do their own uh wet the bed situation in super bowl 20 years later so i'm excited to see yeah, what right. happens in the year 2000 uh what would it be 38 um we'll see it's what happens like that. yeah <laughs> I'm ready for the next horrible Falcons memory. Um, Gary, this is great. Um, Thank you so much, and uh, I will talk to you soon. Uh, It's been my pleasure, Chase. You asked great questions, and uh, I look forward to doing this with you again someday. All right, that'll do it for today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. Thank you uh, to the wonderful guests for coming on today's show. Thank you uh, to my wonderful listeners for listening to today's episode. Uh, I greatly appreciate it. Um, If you like today's episode, leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple. It would be great. Um, it helps the show continue to grow, and I would very much appreciate it. Uh, you can also support the show on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. Um, for as little as $5 a month, it helps the show keep the lights on. So that would be a great help to me as well. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at Chase underscore Thomas. You could go to chasethomaspodcast.com, which 
has all of my stuff, all my episodes ever, um, links to everything that you need, um, and all of my writing that uh, I'm doing fairly often these days um, on the NFL, on NBA, on college football, on pro wrestling. I write about everything. I write a lot. Um, so go read me on that front. So if you're not tired of listening to me, you can also read me. Um, so that's awesome. But uh, I think that's enough self-promotion from me for one episode. Uh, I hope you continue listening. That would be great. And uh, I will talk to you all again very soon. Thanks, guys. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.